Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote, and this week's guest is Kelly Thompson. Um, this was this was a great one. Uh, we talked about West Coast Avengers, we talked about Nancy Drew, we talked about Rogue and Gambit, um, we talked about all the projects that she can't announce yet, <laughs> but hopefully will very soon. Uh, we talked about X-Men, but you know, when don't we talk about X-Men? Um, what's happening on the site right now? Uh, just put up a, uh, not necessarily a review of Doomsday Clock 5, but kind of an essay on the current state of Watchmen between Doomsday Clock and uh, what's going on with the HBO series where David Lindelof is saying it's going to be a remix. And kind of how the Watchmen franchise, you know, what started as this uh, powerful 12-issue standalone story by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons is kind of turned into this... Uh, factory of morbid curiosity of you know oh my god what are, what are they going to do these characters now uh this week coming up we're going to be looking at the end of exit stage left the snackle post chronicles uh, easily uh one of the best series that came out this year i uh, hope you guys have been reading it i've been kind of rereading it in uh prep for this the last issue come to come out and kind of collect my thoughts but um you know that's still coming up this week uh right now here's Miriam kelly um, yeah, so first of all, uh, we're recording this about a week out from the West Coast Avengers announcement, so uh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Um, we're pretty excited. Yeah. Uh, first thing I noticed when I saw the lineup from the team, uh, the Hawkeyes, America Chavez, Gwenpool, Quentin Quire, was that this team was made up of characters whose titles had all pretty much been canceled in the spring. Uh, was it a, a conscious choice to kind of bring all these these specific characters together? I mean, I mean, obviously you've staked a claim to to, to Kate Bishop uh, over the last couple of years, but how about the others? Uh, I think it was not as deliberate as people might think. Um, I mean, I think it's sort of a, a happy accident in that it's great because there are fan bases for those individual characters that sometimes overlap and sometimes don't. And so putting them together in a team book is a great way to, you know, assemble all of those fans. So I, I think that hopefully that's uh, ends up being a good thing. It definitely wasn't the primary motivator. It was more when we were trying to figure out the cast, which it was definitely the most, I don't want to say contentious because that makes it seem bad, but it was definitely the most back and forth I've done and, and one of the longest lead ups into us sort of all agreeing on what the book should be. Um, and it was more a thing where it's like, hey, this character is available now. You know, like mm -hmm. I've just found out, like, let me let me poke around and see who's interesting that's out there, who's not being used, who might be interesting for us. And so that was sort of... Gwenpool was always sort of in that mix um, because I had been talking to Heather Antos and, and, and Jordan and some people involved with the Gwenpool book. Um, and we really liked that character. The trick for me was getting her to work in an ensemble is different than her in a solo book. So yeah. I was always interested in her, but wasn't sure I could make it work. And then Quentin choir came available as sort of a really great wild card at the last minute. And we were like, okay, that's really interesting. Like putting him in with these other strong personalities uh, is that could make for some real magic if we can get it right. And so we started playing around with it. Um, I think that, even though this wasn't the cast that I started out or the book that I started out thinking I wanted, I was going for more of a classic Avengers, maybe with a few younger people thrown in. Mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty excited about it now. I, I, it's probably one of my favorite scripts I've ever written um, so far. It's definitely like top five. So I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, people are getting really hung up on the reality show angle. And I, <laughs> I think that's not going to be what they think it is. Um, I've already tried to go online and, 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 and just manage expectations a little bit because I think documentary style is more accurate, you know, where you're getting sort of a confessionals with the characters talking to the camera, quote unquote, which is like mm -hmm. sort of like breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader. But but it's not completely documentary style in the way that they sort of talk about what this element is in their life. So I don't know. It's definitely a thing where people should read it and see. And listen, if they're not into it, that's fine. But like 
judging it because you think it's going to be a rehash of the New York New Warriors book from gosh how long ago was that eight years ago or something or yeah like definitely last decade yeah or or because you think it's going to be like I don't know ecstatics or something you've seen before I mean you know just check it out like and if you don't dig it that's fine but it's not. I feel like people are hearing reality show and a lot of people think that's great too, but plenty of people are like, Oh no reality show. I'm not interested in that. And it's like, first of all, like most of what we have on television are reality shows. So clearly someone's interested in it. Second of all, that's not really what it is. It's more of a parks and rec meets superheroes instead of a, I don't know, real world meets superheroes. So, and I was going to bring that up because I, I had seen you mention that on Twitter, and I think you you used the same comparison on uh, this week in Marvel last week. Um, that Parks and Rec is a, is a favorite show of mine. Uh, I was wondering if that was, I mean, you know, is that is that something you know in bringing out the comparison was that a show that you watched? Uh, you know, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Parks and Rec was actually a show, and I think this happened to a fair number of fans where I watched the first season of it, and I was like, meh all right, whatever. It's uh, I get it, but I'm not that into it. And then it just sort of tweaked itself, just a few little things. Right. Mm-hmm. And it just became magic in those later seasons. And so, yeah, I really love it. And it was something I can't remember if it was Sana Amna or myself who said it first, but it was in the very, very early days when we were like, maybe the Kate book should spin out into a West coast Avengers book and everyone and people at Marvel were sort of interested in that idea. And it was one of the two of us said, you know, what if they sort of don't have funding and it's sort of Parks and Rec meets Avengers? Like, what is something there? And, us, and we were like, oh, yeah, there's something there. So let's let's pursue that. And let's with that in the background, let's sort of see where we end up. And, uh, yeah, I'm really happy with the, the, the final mix that we've gotten, at least on the first script. We're, you know, we're still mm-hmm. early days, but it's pretty exciting. You know, I, I, I think that's a great jumping off point because one of the things that I loved about Parks and Rec is the humor was always, it was a very hopeful show, even about something as, you know, uh, I guess full of drudgery as, as local government. It still found a way to be this very kind of optimistic uh, workplace comedy. And it was a very character first comedy. Uh, I, I think I've probably watched it through like three times. Yeah. I think, and I think that that's very, certainly very Kate Bishop, the sort of optimism in the face of not so great stuff um, and the sort of not give upness of it all. Like it's a pretty, it's a pretty great fit with Kate. And I think uh, it's, you know, it's a great ensemble and that's what West Coast Avengers is going to be. And so there, there's just a lot of touchstones between the two. And you know, I had a few people being like, well, will it have action? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I didn't say it's Parks and Rec. I said it's Parks and Rec meets superheroes. Like, you know, it's, of course there's going to be action. I don't think I've ever written a non-action superhero book. Like, what what would be the point of that? I need people punching things. Like, uh, why why would we not punch anything? <laughs> it's just 22 pages of Gwen Fool behind a desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Just being, being, uh, protecting, uh, uh, protecting the schedule. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, no, it's, uh, it's going to be a lot. And our first issue with the sort of higher price point, we're 30 pages for the first issue. So mm-hmm. it really gives us a chance to sort of delve into the concept and like get the characters introduced and like, so sort of everything is working there, uh, from, from the first issue. And I, I'm really excited about it. I, I haven't seen a lot of pages from Stefano yet. Cause he tends to send them in big batches, mm-hmm. but the couple things I've seen are some of my favorite pages I've ever seen from my stuff that I've done in Marvel. It's really great stuff. Like, cause he really, you know, Stefano is one of those artists and not everyone can do this, but you know, he's really good at big superhero action, but he's also really good at and interested in, which is huge, the comedy element. So it was a really great fit and he was really excited about the script and, and that always makes me really happy because you want your artists to like be into it. It makes them do even better work, mm-hmm. <laughs> makes them stay up all night long to work on your project. So it's been exciting. Uh, have you guys talked at all about like costume changes? I mean, I know Johnny's basically brand new to, to superheroing from the end of, from the end of Hawkeye, but uh, as far as any of the other ones. 
We've talked about tweaking them a little bit. Um, I was sort of interested in giving Quentin a costume, but Alana and maybe Stefano, I can't remember, sort of talked me out of it, that he's sort of better in his like mean t-shirts and stuff. And they're right. Um, so I, I think there will be a little bit of tweaking just as Stefano interpret, interprets the designs himself. Mm-hmm. But mostly we're going to let everyone sort of, you know, be the way they are, except for Johnny, of course, who uh, Stefano designed this great costume that, you know, you guys just sort of got to peek at it, which is a little bit superhero and a little bit surfer because Johnny is a is a sort of surf surf bunny. So <laughs> um, in kind of working out, a you know, a, a Bible or, or planning for the series at all, um, did you consult with, you know, some of the writers who's handled these characters previously, like, uh, for example, with Gwenpool, Christopher Hastings, or with Quentin, uh, Christina Strain? Not really. I did a lot of reading. Um, and in the case of Gwenpool, I talked to Heather, and then I later talked to Jordan White, who knows a lot about Gwenpool, who edited also. And uh, so there was a lot of talk with them, but I didn't talk a lot with directly with the writers. I mean, there just wasn't really time, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. Um, there's also a thing where, I don't know, I, maybe I should have. I tend to like being consulted because I'm a control freak. But, you know, there's, it can also be a little bit tender in there. Like you're not sure where the boundaries are of like how someone feels about you taking on that project or not or you using that character. I mean, I've found that writers are, are especially at Marvel, are very inclusive and very helpful when you ask. So maybe I should have. Um, but, you know, sometimes... I don't know. Sometimes it feels like it gets in the way of what you're trying. Like, I always feel this way about research, too. Like, there's this point where you can do too much research and sure. now you've gotten yourself in trouble and now you're not thinking for yourself anymore and you're sort of too slavishly devoted to what came before. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's necessarily true with talking to writers, but I do think you can sort of get in your own head a little bit about what other people have done or like how much you respect what they've done. And then you could kind of put your own sort of gilded handcuffs on yourself about what you're doing. So it's a fine line. It's a fine line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, With, with Kate and Kate and Clint obviously have a rapport going back a few years now. Um, You know, you've got a few characters or or, or at least a couple characters on this team who aren't sort of used to interacting with the Hawkeyes on a a regular basis. Um, Is it going to be like, is it a pain? Okay, is it a pain for other heroes when they're in the field and using code names to have to differentiate between the Hawkeyes? Mm -hmm. And is there an easy way to do that? Um, I don't really see it as a problem i mean i'm sort of a hardliner that i think the hawkeyes stuff is fine like i like to poke fun at it and 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 address the fact that yes it's a thing but like that it's not really a problem i mean i feel like they're just calling them kate and clint and it's not like they have secret identities it would be different if they were batman and then you'd be like You'd be like, Bruce, oh, whoops, I mean, Batman, like, you know, like, uh, so it doesn't really matter with Kate and Clint, they're sort of out to the public. So I I think mostly their teammates call them Clint and Kate, you know, in those sort of scenarios. Mm -hmm. I have America in a couple scenes referring to Clint as Hawkeye, but they're sort of on their own. They're not, uh, you know, they're not in the mixed company of the double Hawkeyes. Mm -hmm. Um, I like a sort of. I think I take a sort of meta view of it of like, let's poke fun at this thing and because we have it. And so why not, you know, use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I don't know. It doesn't really bother me. I, I the, the, the problem I see with the Hawkeye name is outside of comics. I think um, outside of comics, it becomes a bit of a problem because people who play video games, perhaps, or watch the movies, they may not be aware, and then they get easily confused as to why are these two characters. And I do think it potentially ends up limiting Kate Bishop uh, in what she can do and in how big she can grow outside of comics because it's a confusing name for people. But um, 
the only thing worse than that being confusing is trying to come up with a really fantastic superhero name that means <laughs> something and that nobody has already used, which is impossible, by the way. True. <laughs> I was shocked we were able to get Fuse, which actually works really well for Johnny and is a pretty great name. I was like, wait, I can't believe that's not everywhere. Like, how, how did we stumble onto this? It felt so lucky. There, so. there, there's not there wasn't like a pre-existing fuse in like the official handbook for the marvel universe or anything like that <laughs> not nothing that swayed us off of using it at least nothing okay. that was yeah. large enough to cause a problem yeah that's good um i mean you know one thing i'll say about you know marvel of the past few years is i think they've accustomed regular readers to sort of the noah's arc approach where you know what i mean like there's two spider-men and there's two uh, you know, Hawkeye's two Thors. I mean, basically everybody who got the got a Generations book last year. So yeah, yeah. No, I really don't think it's that big of a problem in comics. It's mm -hmm. the, it's the, uh, it's the outside of comics where I think you run into something. Sure. So I, I, I looking in the preview art, and I actually just kind of thumbed through the last issue of Hawkeye. Um, and and forgive me if the answer's out there, and I didn't I didn't see it. Is Lucky okay? <laughs> Lucky's fine. Lucky's always fine. Nothing can kill that dog. He'll be there. He'll be there. I, he doesn't actually show up in the first issue just because we've got so much jammed in there, but he'll, he'll be in subsequent issues. Um, <clears throat> although that, that could change depending on some other things that I can't say, but for the, for the foreseeable future, he's, he's in our book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was scared to find out whether he'd gone the route of John Wick's dog. Oh no, 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 no. Never do that to Lucky. Um, Honestly, the fans would kill me if I did that. I think they they love Lucky so much, as as do I. But you wouldn't believe how many Tumblr asks and, and Twitter questions I get about Lucky. Absolutely. I mean, I have two dogs, so I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the early press for this project, it talked about how villains see a sort of superhero vacuum in Los Angeles, thus necessitating a West Coast team. Uh, in the real world, DC is based in Burbank now. Images in Portland, like half the people who work in comics live in Portland, including yourself. <laughs> um, why is the left coast still a forgotten stepchild? I don't know, really. I mean, I understand why New York is the focus. I mean, New York is long considered sort of the center of the Western world, right? It's one of the most amazing cities in the world. Mm -hmm. And Marvel has their headquarters there and always has. So there's sort of almost a home base, like a home team aspect to that. I think New York is an incredible character. I think it's got all those sort of, you know, the buildings and the city and, and the water. It's got all these elements that you want for a superhero story and it immediately ups the stakes, this idea of something happening, you know, in Manhattan or whatever. And, and, and it's got so much variety. Um, so I totally understand why they want to use it, but it does surprise me that LA doesn't get used more or other cities, but especially LA because it's the other obvious opposite. Um, just because it's such an interesting, different aesthetic, you know, it was one of the things we really leaned into for Hawkeye and we had a lot of fun with. And, uh, you know, it was one of the reasons why it was thought that this might be a good time to, you know, Marvel, even though we didn't do huge numbers for Hawkeye, I mean, solo books are just really tough, especially in this market. But even though we didn't do those huge numbers, Marvel really loved Hawkeye and they were very supportive of it. And I think they thought that one of the things we did really well was utilize LA and they thought it would be a great time to sort of launch a West coast Avengers out of that because we had sort of staked a claim on the West coast. And I had been seeding in Hawkeye the idea that the superheroes weren't out there and, mm. you know, at least low level villains were sort of staking a claim and getting away with murder because nobody was out there to police them. So, um, I think it, it all sort of came together really organically. How how does how do you see Clint fitting into this team? I mean, you know, beyond obviously he and Kate, you know, having had the relationship that they have, but you know, it's a very it's a very young skewing team. You know, not mm -hmm. quite not quite a champions, you know, but it's right. definitely he he's definitely you know even though Clint's I mean I imagine to be like maybe early to mid thirties at the, at the oldest, but you know, I, I still see him kind of rolling up to like a Gwenpool or a Quentin Quire and being that, 
Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids meme. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely older than everyone else and very aware of it. Um, but I mean, he doesn't come in to lead that team. He comes mm-hmm. in to mentor that team. Like, you know, I've done this before. I know how to do this and I'm going to help you. Uh, to do it here's a need and I mean I think that this is a thing of Clint and Kate for sure probably for most everyone on the team but it's especially prevalent in Clint and Kate is you know they're they're heroes first and foremost they want to save the day they um, they abuse their non-superpowered bodies mightily to use their skills in order to be heroes and so you know Clint sees that Kate's right there's a vacuum there and it needs to be addressed and here are these kids who want to do it or who are willing to do it. And, and I also think that Clint tremendously believes in Kate Bishop. Um, I think he sees himself in her and then he, from his perspective, he also sees her as being better than he is and that she can be better than he is. Um, I don't, that's not how I see it. I don't think that's how Kate sees it, but I mean, she certainly gives him a hard time that that's how she sees it, but not really. And uh, so, you know, he's there to mentor. I think in initially it's going to go fine, but I think living together with those kids, which is sort of the situation, mm. uh, it's going to drive him insane. And uh, that will be very fun for everyone involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Last uh, kind of silly Parks and Rec question. Who is the John Ralphio of the group? I mean, it's clearly Quentin Quire. If only so that we can use that gif of him saying, it's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, kind of moving on to, to some of your other projects. Uh, you got to put a, a nice little stinger on your Rogue and Gambit series with the Bachelorette Party story in the X-Men Wedding special. Uh, the little scene between uh, Kitty and Rogue. Um, it's been really refreshing. Uh, it was really refreshing to watch Rogue and Gambit work out their issues in the course of the miniseries. Uh, is there any part of you that feels like, man, it's going to suck when the next writer comes along and undoes that? You know, certainly, I mean, I, as a reader, I feel that way. Or do you kind of accept that it's part of the cyclical nature of, of superhero comics? I think it's a little bit of both. I think uh, you have to accept that, that nothing you write is sort of sacred and that it's all... A jumping off point for someone else um, but I also think that I have some faith maybe it's misplaced but I don't think it is mm-hmm. that Marvel wouldn't have let me you know we hadn't decided when I started pitching that book and even when I started writing that book we hadn't really decided like are should this be a happy ending for them or should this set them set them up to go their separate ways it really hadn't been decided and and we had sort of two alternate endings and i just don't really think they would have let me go with the hardcore happy ending unless they were interested in that pairing Mm -hmm. so uh in in revisiting it for for a new generation and to bring back old fans i i just don't think like, why Why would they do that? It's much cleaner to go the other way if you're not sort of committed to that idea. So I, I have faith that they are interested in that idea and they're not going to immediately undo it. So uh, we also got an insane number. Like, you know, miniseries sales are never the best, so it's always sort of hard to judge. I think we're going to sell really well in trade. Um, because I think, well, there's a ton of good word of mouth on that book. Um, we got so many letters. We just got deluge of letters expressing people's love for that book and love for the pairing, the the social media love. I I mean, I think Marvel was really impressed with that and it really helped remind them that people love this pairing and they have, they've been sort of sitting apart for a long time and that always leaves you with sort of fertile ground, I think. And, uh, you know, the miniseries ended up setting that up in a really great way. And I I think Marvel will run with that ball rather than drop it, you know. So mm-hmm. I understand why fans are nervous. I, I get nervous, too. Um, but I feel like in this case, I feel like there's good reason to believe it's going to go in a positive direction for those two. And, uh, and yeah. And if it doesn't, then, you know, that is the nature of comics. Like, it's it's just part of what you have to accept when you when you get to contribute to a much larger tapestry, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
based on based on Rogan Gambit, do you now have like sort of a a, a daily uh, kind of outpouring on Twitter? Like, when you, when are you going to announce your ex, next X Men book? Huh? Huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's daily on Twitter, but between Twitter and Tumblr and everywhere else I am, yeah, I get that question constantly. Like, especially because people know I've got three more things to to announce. Yeah. And they've been very slow rollout, so it's been frustrating to people, and um, especially people who want more Rogue and Gambit. Like, uh, so it's been a bit tricky. But um, you know, there's a, I get a lot of asks where they're like, "At least let us know if one of those three books is an X book." And I'm like, "Yeah, I can't, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Like, it's just gotta keep it locked down, guys." <laughs> so. Well, we just got the August solicitations, so, you know, just going to have to wait at least one more month until... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be July, probably, for okay. for at least for at least two of the announcements. I don't know about the third one. Um, the third one? I don't know. SDCC would probably be a good place to announce the third one, so that could... It could happen then, but it might it might be as late as August, I guess. Are you, are you so, going yeah. to San Diego? I'm not. I'm not. I uh, I'm very upset that I can't go, but I'm I'm having some physical therapy for my knee, so oh, okay. it's not. I can't. I can't do the whole San Diego Comic Con thing, unfortunately. So. Absolutely. Um, beyond Marvel, you you've also got Nancy Drew coming out from uh, Dynamite with Jensen Ange, your old partner from the Gem Days. How did this opportunity present itself? Um. Nate Cosby, who's a freelance editor um, who works for Dynamite and maybe some other places. I think he works a few other companies as well. He had a couple options of things he was putting together that he thought I might be good for and was I interested in. And Nancy Drew was on the shortlist. And it was, of course, something I was really interested in. And it was also something that we thought could fit with my schedule. Like, you know, because some of them are a longer lead time because you have to work with licensors and get things approved. And he Mm -hmm. said that the Nancy Drew people were pretty great about that and that he didn't think it was a long lead time to get stuff approved. So, uh, and then I reached out to Jen because Jen, or I asked Nate if he was into Jen's work. He was super on board with that. And so I reached out to Jen because she and I had just had something fall apart with another publisher that had sort of broken both our hearts that wasn't going forward. And so I asked her if she liked Nancy Drew and she was like, what? And she was like, (laughs) she was, she was so into it and I was really excited. And so we were sort of looked at our schedules and figured out that she had room for five issues. And, and so the rest was sort of history. Um, It was really great. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever been as in sync with an editor as Nate, like just right from the go, like we have a lot of the same instincts and we have a lot of the same touchstones for the things we're interested in. And it's been just like such a really wonderful working experience. Um, that is, uh, that's fantastic. And, um, Jen St. Ange real quick. Uh, I don't know if you got to read her, uh, bingo love OGN with T Franklin. You know, I haven't actually read it. Um, I have not gotten to it. It's on my list. It's 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 a it's a beautiful story and her art is fantastic in that. So Jen is a tremendous tremendous talent. She's incredible. Uh, you know, she was we if you can believe it, we had her quote audition to do Misfits, mm-hmm. which now just she's so freaking good. It seems absurd that we weren't just like on our hands and knees begging her to do it. Um, you know, she turned in an incredible audition. And so we were like, yeah, can you start yesterday? Um, but she did such amazing work with that. And and the shocking thing to me is that her Nancy Drew stuff, even though her misfit stuff, I look at that and it's incredible. And I don't think she, I, I look at that misfit stuff and I feel like that's someone who's basically at their peak, like they're killing it, you know? <laughs> uh, and then I look at the Nancy Drew stuff and of course we did gem infinite together too. And she wowed me there as well. And then when I look at the Nancy Drew stuff, it's like, she's even better. And I sort of don't, can't even believe it. And we've also got uh, Triona Farrell coloring her for Nancy Drew. And I am just astounded every time I open the pages, how lush they look. They just look like, I don't know. They look like you could squeeze them and the color would just come out of them. They look so vibrant They're I just love them so much. They're a fantastic team. Oh yeah, no. Triano's colors are are amazing. Um, I and in, the artists who have contributed variant covers, um, that I've seen like Tula Lote and uh, Annie Wu. I mean, 
No, it's like a murderer's yeah. row of colorists. We've got Babs. We've got Babs. We've got Annie Wu. We've got uh, so Babs star Annie Wu. Uh, I'm leaving some people out. Oh, Paulina. Hers hasn't come out yet, but Paulina Ganeshaw did one mm-hmm. that's incredible. We've got one coming up from Jim Bartel. I mean, just amazing, amazing. Uh, Tula's are, Tula's was one of my first, and that's one of those things with Nate and I being so in sync because mm-hmm. he was like, you know, I want to put together a list of variant cover artists. He's like, uh, you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but Tula Latte is one of my favorite. I'm like, are you kidding me? She's my, <laughs> she's the number one name I put on the top of everything when I want an artist and I never get her. I was like, yes, with a bullet, Tula Latte. So super excited. Yeah. Um, so you've gotten to work on a number of, of different kind of, you know, licensed franchises over the, over the years, Nathan Drew, Star Wars, Gem, Ghostbusters, Power Rangers, uh, not to mention the X-Men, you know, that you could fill a whole Saturday morning with all of those. <laughs> but, uh, what was, you know, what are, what was some of the media that you can, you consumed growing up personally? You know, it, it could be comics, it could be cartoons, you know, a favorite movie. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think certainly X-Men was very formative. The X-Men animated series was a thing for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Archie's even before I knew really what quote comics were end quote. I mean, when I would just grab the digests off of the grocery store checkout line and beg my mom to buy them for me. Um, so I loved Archie. I did watch Gem as a kid, uh, and loved it, but I also, I was like big into GI Joe. I loved Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you know, all of that era. Willow is like one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, along with, you know, Star Wars stuff. And I mean, I was your classic uh, 80s, 90s nerd. <laughs> who are some of that when you started getting into uh, into comics? Who are some of the writers that you you kind of looked to, up to and, you know, entering the medium? Well, I mean, I think that if you're going back to my teenage years, I mean, that mm-hmm. sort of the stuff that I was first getting into was right when all the image stuff was breaking away. So, you know, your Jim Lee's and, you know, uh, and Mark Silvestri's and things were, were doing their own properties over at image. And I was really interested in those, but I was also interested in all the guys who were writing X-Men at that time, Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza and all that stuff. Um, you know, now, but, but as I grew up, it's become more, you know, people who I've followed sort of both in uh, work for higher comics and also in creator own stuff like Greg Rucka and, uh, you know, Kelly Sudaconic and Matt Fraction and uh, Stuart Amonin and Warren Ellis. Um, you know, these, these people sort of shape the stuff I'm interested in. Um, and they're doing incredible work. Like they're also the longevity of what they do. Like, you know, they've, they've been around for a long time, but they've, they're somehow just as relevant today. You know, the fact that Greg Rucka is doing like the best work of his career, but also all his old work is incredibly good. Like, how do you do that? Like, it's, it's just like such a consistent, stellar career, you know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and Warren Ellis—that's uh, another person I can't believe is you know still around and thriving and and relevant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's this constant reinvention of yourself and like interest in different kind of stories, and you know, you you can see a lot of themes in in most writers' work, like things that they return to and that they're interested in. But constantly finding new ways to to embrace and execute those kind of stories is—I uh, mean, I think it's that key to that longevity and that we all hope for. Um, you mentioned being a fan of the X-Men cartoon as well as the comics. Did you go from the cartoon to the comics or did you start with the comics before the cartoon? No, no. The cartoon was how I basically discovered comics. Like I didn't, you know, I read the Archies, but I didn't know about a thing like a comic book store or that monthly floppies came out. Like I didn't know any of that stuff. And it's actually, uh, my brother and I were watching cartoons one Saturday. We're flipping channels, looking for something good. And we stopped on, and I think it was the scene of rogue punching that sentinel in the mall. Mm-hmm. And we both, it was like a slow take of us both looking at each other. And we're like, what is this? <laughs> and then we were just completely hooked. Like a, like you could do a cartoon of us just with like fish hooks yanking us out of the water. Like we were in, 
And I don't know exactly how long it was in my mind. It's like a couple weeks later, but I'm mm. not sure how long for sure. He, my, I have two younger brothers. Uh, Scott is the one who's closer to me in age, who was the one who really fell in love with the cartoon with me. And he came running in the do door one day after he'd been at the mall with my mom. And he was like, look, look, it's that girl from the comic. And he had uh, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 290 in his hands, which had Storm on the cover, like sort of crying in the rain sort of thing. The uh, Forge breakup well, issue. Yes, yes, yes. And he was like, look. And I was like, oh, my God. And my little brother, David, who wasn't mm -hmm. as into the show, but who also got a comic, he had, uh, had X-Force number three. And so mm -hmm. those became my first two comics. And uh, that was it. I was in. <laughs> I was. It was. Uh, it was an obsession forever. Then that was it. <laughs> that that cartoon was such a, a gateway drug for our generation. But I, I always kind of like want like hearing like what if you went from the cartoon to the comics like what your first comic was because it was not obviously a one to one correlation because I remember sure my first was uh, the other you know adjectiveless X Men. Uh, number right. 20. So that was the issue where all of a sudden there were two Psylocks. Right. And wow, that's a amazing A wasn't issue. in the cartoon <laughs> and then B, like, why are yeah. the two of them? <laughs> yeah, that's a confusing issue to jump into. Uh, that's you know, interesting. I, yeah, and it yeah. was the beginning of a star story arc. So, you know, yeah. nowadays Marvel would call that a great jumping on point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Well, we had, um, I think the first trip to the comic book store after we read those which probably was just a matter of days because i'm sure i would not leave my mother alone mm -hmm. um we ended up buying it was my first introduction to variant covers because of course what did we go for off the wall not in the bins off the wall not mm -hmm. on the shelves we grab we wanted excellent because we didn't even really know prices we knew nothing we were just babes lost in the woods and <laughs> so we got two copies of x-men of x-men number one and i got the one with rogue on it of course because okay. that's what i do and my brother i think got the one with beast on it maybe mm -hmm. no i don't remember anyway um and so then we were cut to in the car i mean we had we had bought other books too but those were the ones we were most interested in and so then i look at him and he's reading what i knew was my book because i'd opened it and looked at it and I was like, hey, that's my comic you're reading. And he's like, no, it's mine. Look. I was like, but that's the story I was reading. And then and then, sure enough, that was our introduction to variant covers. We both have the same book. Uh, <laughs> so there was just when I think back of comics, you know, there was so much to learn. And I think it's one of the problems that for for later readers Right. Because yeah. as a kid, you have a lot of time on your hands. You don't have a lot you've got to do. You can get obsessed about a hobby. You know, you can hopefully you've got some pocket money and you've got some money to spare that you can put into that hobby. You know, mm -hmm. you've got the time to be like, oh, variant covers are cool. I can read everything about this and figure out which one to buy and blah, blah, blah. As an adult, that 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 becomes a deterrent for getting into something. You're like, wait, why isn't it easy? I don't understand. And so I do think it's one of the real Jekyll and Hyde's of the comic book industry where it's like this super cool, fun thing, especially to discover as a kid. But if you don't learn it when you're a kid, it becomes like, really, you know, I'm 25. I have enough hard things to learn. Do I really have to learn about variant covers also? Like, it seems so confusing, you know? And, like, why do the numbers keep changing? And what are the volumes? And where are the things? You know, yeah. I also... Years ago, when I used to write a column, I did a couple comics experiments where I gave comics to new readers who mm -hmm. were all adults, all over 21. And to a single... <laughs> every single person... Uh, as I recall, uh, had a problem with the ads because they just didn't understand why there were ads in the middle of this story they were reading. And like, that's the thing that anyone who's read comics since they were a kid, like we don't even blink. I don't even think yeah. about it. 
I'm like, oh, here's this annoying ad, but whatever. I don't. I didn't even notice it because I'm just trained of how to read it. But if you give a comic book to an older person who hasn't read that, they might not understand which order, how to read it. And when they hit an ad, they're reading the ad, especially ads that are confusing, which, you know, there are a lot of those in there where it's like, oh, it's designed to look like a comic book page or whatever. So I think there are all these. Hostess weird... fruit pies. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I feel like there are all these barriers that are cool fun quirky things that i sort of love about comics well i could do without ads but you know you know what i mean but um but they're actually make it really tough for other people to sort of get in and uh i i don't know what the answer to that is um i don't know if there is one it's it is its own kind of of literacy and i mean part of it is like if you're not get i don't know there I think currently we do live in a golden age where there's such variety in the media that like, I don't think you have to, you know, I I would never lament somebody not being into like superhero comics, but there's so much other stuff in, in other genres that there is something for, for you. You know what I mean? I mean, for for everyone. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. But I, again, I think, and my mom isn't the best example of this because Mm -hmm. my mom is not a big art literature person um i mean she loves to read but she's not i don't know she's not super into these kind of things or weird hobbies or collector type things she's not into any of that stuff so she doesn't have a good vocabulary for it but you know Mm -hmm. she participated in one of my experiments and i knew she doesn't like superheroes from growing up in the house with her and so i gave her um the graphic novel, How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, which I thought she might enjoy. And so we're talking on the phone and she's holding it in her, she's holding it in her hand. And she goes, but I don't understand how this is a comic. And I'm like, what do you mean? You're looking at it. (laughs) Like, how can you not understand that it's a comic? And she's like, well, how is this a comic? And I was like, mom, you're driving me insane. What do you mean? How is it a comic? (laughs) Open it up. It's got panels. It's a comic book story. Like it, that's how it's told with sequential art, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, yeah, but is it a comic? And I'm like, oh my God, you're like, uh, we had the most insane conversation. And it finally, finally, after me wanting to strangle her through the phone and I'm sure her feeling the same about me, you know, it became obvious that she was not understanding the difference between genre and medium. And Ah, I was able to fix that for her sort of, I mean, but she still doesn't really get it. And I think there are a ton of people like my mother who don't understand that superhero is a genre and comic book is a medium. And there might be a million stories that you would love that have nothing to do with superheroes that are out there in comic book form, you know, but I think you said it right. It's a very specific form of literacy and not everybody has it. And if you don't acquire it as a child or at least as a teen, uh, it can be an uphill battle and you really have to fall in love with it. I think in order to, decide to seek it out and that's completely different and it explains why the industry struggles i think because we don't have that for tv or movies or video games like there's no uphill battle and Mm -hmm. again that's sort of cool about comics because it makes it's it's such a specific unique thing but it does create a barrier to getting into it and i think that that holds a lot of people back i i think you know i think libraries are a good ally in that fight if you know definitely the ones that stock graphic novels because they can kind of they can provide the gateway for younger readers who then definitely. eventually will sort of graduate to to comic shops totally agree totally agree and i think that one of the great things uh, i'm not a librarian so i'm just speculating but sure. um it feels like because comics and graphic novels are sort of have been pretty popular in the book market in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. I feel like librarians are a big part of that. And they're, you know, because they're always interested in getting more readers of anything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like they're great advocates for getting those comics into their, their libraries and sharing them and helping people understand that type of literacy. So it's huge. Um, I live, uh, near Atlantic city, uh, in New Jersey and, uh, the library in Atlantic city got a, uh, I think it was like an Eisner foundation grant a couple of years ago. And basically it was just a few thousand dollars to just stock a section with like 
it was like the, all the 2016 Eisner nominees, and then they also used it to buy a lot of like manga. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, you've got a couple of novels under your belt: uh, "The Girl Who Would Be King" and "Story Killer." Uh, is that medium still something you're you're looking to explore, or is your dance cart kind of all full up with comics at this point? Uh, I think the answer is yes to both of those. I do not want to exit at all, especially story killer. I mean, I have a long overdue second volume that I get asked about all the time from my fans. And I literally every day feel this crippling guilt over having not finished that book and gotten it out. Uh, but literally I mean, I just have to pay the bills and, Mm -hmm. you know, unless an agent comes along wanting to buy up, story killer one and to do the next volumes you know there's no advance money there so that i can say okay well that's part of my day goes to this thing instead because it's a kickstarted because i did it that way it's all back end so Mm -hmm. there's no money in order to find time to carve out of my life until maybe the end you know um it's still a priority me priority to me and I'm still trying to figure out how to make it work, but I have totally failed thus far to integrate comics and novel writing. Um, and I, I think it's a lot of things. I think the number one thing is just, I have a lot on my plate. The number two thing is it's amazing. And I don't, I haven't heard a lot of creators talk about this, um, I saw G. Willow Wilson talking about it a little bit, and I was just like nodding my head so hard. It was like I'm almost fall off. But um, I find the downshift or upshift, whatever you want to call it, between the two very difficult. Um, Like it's way easier for me to jump into writing a screenplay or a pilot from comics than going to prose because prose is just a totally different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I just I just it's really been a struggle to make that jump. I don't know. I hope it's going to happen this summer to finish it and get it back out there uh, because I just the weight of it is sort of crushing me with Story Killer 2. Um, but I just haven't been able to make it happen yet. It's very frustrating. Um, what are you reading when you're not writing? Well, not enough. Um, there's a I have a real I love to read more than mm-hmm. almost anything, but I am very undisciplined. Like if I get into something, it's very hard for me to put it down and do my writing work. And so if I'm reading, I tend not to be writing, which is not a good way to make a living for me. So it's a little tricky. Um, Certainly I have to read a lot of comics. um, A lot of comics I love to read, but I also have a lot of Marvel stuff that, and I like reading a lot of it as well, but some of it is just to keep up. I mean, there's not anyone at Marvel who's like, you better be reading this, but just, you know, if you you have to constantly be pitching and thinking about what kind of stories you're doing, I mean, even if you're Mm -hmm. still on the same book, you still have to think of what's this next arc going to be. And so it behooves you to stay as current as you can with what they're doing. Um, And I'm very lucky that I get the books, you know, a month or two ahead, just as PDFs, so that I can, if I stay on top of it, do a decent job Um, So a lot of my reading is taken up with that, just staying on top of things. Um, I read, I do read a lot of other comics though. Um, Batman, I've loved Tom King's Batman and his, uh, his uh, Mr. Miracle. Uh, I read a lot of indie comics, Saga and Lazarus and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, When I'm not reading that stuff, honestly, it's a mix. I read a lot of YA, but it ends up being a lot of hate reading. Like I get, I love the concepts and I'm so into the ideas and the idea of the book and like, Oh, it's going to be this thing. And then the second, the like second love interest shows up or something. I just, I just check out. It makes me so mad that it's (laughs) never surprising. And there, there are obviously exceptions. Um, I'm a huge fan of the hunger Games series. I think that's a really surprising, well done, beautiful series. And there, there are lots of exceptions out there. I don't want to paint it with too broad a brush, but I, I do fall into a thing where I pick the wrong genre YA books a lot and it pisses me off. I get real (laughs) mad. Uh, recently I read, um, (laughs) I devoured rather the, um, Michelle McNamara's, uh, the true crime of the, uh, the golden state killer, that book that Patton Oswalt put out posthumously. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 
wait, I, I just said that wrong. Um, so anyway, uh, and it was really good, although, you know, obviously she died and they had to try to piece it together to finish it. And I think, unfortunately, the end does really suffer for lack of her uh, attention to it. But I'm still really glad they got to put it out. She did really amazing work to uh, to on that case. It's, it's pretty incredible. And of course, now they've arrested a guy who's this lead suspect, which is incredible. So mm-hmm. so I, I like a lot of different sort of things. I sort of dabble when I get a chance um, uh, on my nightstand right now are like four books, <laughs> one of which is uh, The Hate You Give, which I've been dying to read. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. to get into that next. Uh, you mentioned kind of having to read certain Marvel books to keep up. Uh, are you looking at uh, maybe Jason Aaron and Ed McGuinness's main Avengers title at all? In, in uh, advance of, I mean, way too soon to announce, you know, to know whether this would exist at all, but a possible crossover. Um, I, I'm, I'm reading that book, and it's great and it's fun. I get, I get a little bit of stage fright, you know, um, reading Jason Aaron's very big budget a lister big team adventures book and then i'm like here i come with my little guys like um (laughs) so but there may be possible for i wouldn't call it a crossover but you know some 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 shenanigans um based on some things that were discussed at the at the retreat that Mm -hmm. i was at last week so i'm sort of excited about that i'll hopefully be emailing him about that soon but um but it won't be sort of the typical crossover you'd expect i don't think so but uh he's doing awesome stuff over there jason aaron is such a talent his his thor has been such a, an amazing run oh yeah um mentioned some of the uh the other franchises that you've worked on is there one out there uh that you haven't gotten to seek your teeth into yet that uh maybe maybe you'd like to at some point buffy oh i, I don't know why nobody has called me to write buffy what's wrong dark horse if you're listening (laughs) yeah um no i mean obviously they've had a lot of great hands on buffy for years um and i don't even know what i do with it at this point um you know they've done so much uh they've taken it in such a specific direction um i think my inclination would be to come in and really shake it up and Mm -hmm. do something very different um which is maybe not what anyone wants so um maybe it's good nobody's called me but uh, yeah, I mean, Buffy is, you know, one of my first loves. Um, I didn't list it in my things I loved as a kid, but I certainly should have because I guess because I was a little bit old to be called a kid when I loved Buffy. I mean, I was like in college, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's I mean, I did inscriptions to Buffy basically in both of my first novels. Like it's uh, it's inspired me a lot over the years. So that's awesome. Um as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Uh, the best place to find me mostly is Twitter, which is at 79semifinalist. And everywhere else, it's basically 1979semifinalist. So my Tumblr, my website, uh, everything like that. Uh, Kelly, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And congratulations on the new site. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. Finally, check out WMQ Comics for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time.